Fans and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the ongoing series within the Let Me Tell You Something oeuvre, in which myself, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a match from the wide history of pro wrestling to see what we think of it within a modern, at least at the time of recording, context. What you might think, listening to this 5,000 years into the future, we're yet to find out. Oh, God. Modern, like, future museums are going to be well boring. It's just going to be like the white male podcast section. They're going to have, like, a wing dedicated. Was it Futurama? It was like a library. It was A to King, King, and King to Z. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Simon, talking about blowharded white Englishmen trying to control everything, what match are we talking about today? We are talking about uh, Rollable Rocco trying to recapture his world middleweight title. Heavy middleweight. Heavy middleweight, sorry. All these weight classes. <laughs> it's like boxing all over again. Against Fuji Yamada, who might otherwise be known to listeners as Jushin von der Ligar. This is, of course, one of the times of a learning excursion. And England was, for this period of time a key location for New Japan graduates of the dojo to hone their craft. The likes of Kichi Yamada, Fuji Yamada, Jushin Thunder Liger, Sammy Lee, later to be known uh, as Tiger Mask, Satoru Sayama, and Akira Maeda also took a trip to England during his learning period. And now it's uh, we've come back to it now. A number of the New Japan Dojo graduates are now plying their trade in the UK scene. Most notably in RevPro. Yes, yep. Yota Suji. Shota Umino. Shota Umino, yes, he's been there as well. And it was where the great Okan developed the character that he now sometimes bores the mid card of New Japan shows with. <laughs> Now, now. Sometimes that's good matches, but sometimes eh, not so much. I think I think that's just New Japan on the whole mm. since the pandemic, but we've covered that. When we talk about the definitive modern style of wrestling that's developed over the years and that we saw with our own eyes as we were doing the Melt to Five Star Project, we were pointing out that I suppose one of the key points of influence to it was the New Japan Junior Heavyweight Wrestling of the 90s. Yeah. That brought a faster pace, more frequent high risk and big moves, along with frequent high flying. And everyone always says it comes from that scene for the most part and was originated, I suppose, in the Dynamite Kid Tiger Mask matches that really set that style. And that was where it grew out from. One person that's always been a bit contrary to that opinion is one William Regal, Mm -hmm. who has always cited that it wasn't the New Japan Junior Heavyweight style that this is based on. It was the British wrestling style of the late 70s, early 80s that's the true originator of this. 
Yeah. And watching this match, you can really see where Regal's coming from in making that case. The pace that this is wrestled at is fast, even by today's standards, I think. Yeah. Uh, what were your first thoughts upon watching this match? And what surprised you, I suppose? Because whilst you've seen... I guess you've seen clips of like the, the British wrestling that everyone associates with British wrestling of the Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, pantomime style. And then with the Les Kellett match, I suppose you also saw, I guess, again, another version of the pantomime, but also a fusing of that more map-based technical wrestling. Yeah. Which is obviously now continued on by Zack Sabre Jr. today. And I guess that somewhere between the two, we saw with the Stephen Regal... Robbie Brookside tag match against Kendo Nagasaki and Blondie Barrett. And a lovely bit of hypnotism as well. Mm -hmm. Was this a surprise to you? Did this go differently to how you expected? Had you seen any Rollable Rocco before this match? I hadn't. I I knew uh, William Regal personally holds him in quite high regard. But I hadn't seen any of him before this. When I heard 15 rounds, I was like, oh, no cards on the table I did I did wince like oh dear but no this was a lot faster than I anticipated it being after hearing that initial announcement just as a little aside I have an interesting tidbit that you may not have picked up on listening to this match it did slip a bit under the radar did you know that was that referee's first televised appearance well he made a bit of a show with one of his three counts I can recall <laughs> it was like a seven count by the time he finished slapping the mats yeah. This is one of the issues I think you have. As, as much as I don't think wrestling should be size-biased as much as possible, when the referee is visibly taller than both the wrestlers, it always looks a bit strange. Taller, but much stringier, in all fairness. But to be honest, I wasn't really paying much attention to the ref. He was he was more energetic than the usual British wrestling referee was that we saw at this time. Thing is, I didn't want to, but the fact they mentioned it at least three times, it's his first televised appearance. I'm like, well, I'm got, you know, sub- my subconscious was drawn to him. So uh, I did notice he wasn't quite in the right position a couple of times, but I, it's his first, it's his first appear- televised appearance. I think it's know? also, you've got to have your working boots on to keep up with these two. Oh, yeah. That's the key point I wanted to make throughout this whole thing. The pace of this is ferocious. It is relentless, and that was what Rollable Rocco was known for doing. It's such an appropriate name for him as well, Rollable, because he does have that smashing, yeah. like, impactful... There are people who make the case, one of them being Satoru Sayama, that Rollable Rocco was actually a better in-ring wrestler than Dynamite Kid, or at least his equal. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And did you know what Rollable Rocco's alter ego was in Japan? Uh, I don't off the top of my head so rollable rocco was the original black tiger <sighs> see i did know that looking back because i know um i think guerrero mentions it in his autobiography when he becomes black tiger yeah i mean that's a hell of a compliment as well the first person that's good enough to inherit the black tiger mantle after rollable rocco is eddie guerrero yeah there have been a number of Black Tigers subsequent to that, but they've never had a very long run with the mask. It was, um, it was Rollable Rocco was a regular in New Japan right up to the late 80s, I think. Mm. He, he fought Jushin Thunder Liger. That's how long he stayed around for. The thing that I get with Rollable Rocco is that he is so aggressive from start to finish. Yeah. And you get the sense from reading stories about him that he was like that 
just in general. You know what he's like? If Roy Keane had become a wrestler, <laughs> or if Joey Barton had become a wrestler, mm. I think Rollable Rocco would be something. He's like that box-to-box midfielder. You know, a bit of a Graham Sooness about him. Especially in the Tash. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's the only thing I think held him back. That maybe he would never have been as big a star as Dynamite Kid was. Because he didn't have as interesting a look as Dynamite Kid yeah. had. He was never... He doesn't have a built physique or anything. He's obviously in great shape for how fast he can go. Yeah. But he, even when Dynamite Kid wasn't filled with the roids and everything, he was, like, lean, no body fat... Had he had long hair and everything, whereas Rollable Rocco, you know, from the neck up, he looks like a like one of the mean PE teachers <laughs> from the eighties. Yeah. He could have he could have fit into a Ken Loach drama just as well as uh, Brian Glover did <laughs> in Kess. He's um yeah, or he... a very officious police officer in an early series of The Bill. Yeah, he does he does have that generic Englishman look about him. But he's far from generic in the ring, like you say. He's throwing around some really crisp um, hip hip tosses early doors in counter to Yamada's arm drags. So there was a nice little trade-off early doors, which I quite liked. He's like, you can do this. I can do basically the same thing just as well. Yeah, the whole story of the match basically is that Rollable Rocco is constantly trying to overwhelm and bully Yamada. And Yamada, for the most part, is able to keep up and will not be bullied, but occasionally Rocco finds the opening and then Yamada has to fight from underneath. Like when he launches him out the ring at the end of one round. Mm. And like I, I do love the needle uh, of uh, Rollable Rocco in this, using the rounds as like a way of like portraying that he is the villain. Well, you know, whether it be that like the abdominal stretch where he's holding him in at the end of the round, then... The round goes, he's like, all right, and just launches him over his shoulder. It's like, I broke the hold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and he's an utter, again, like all bullies, he's an utter hypocrite. Once Yamada overwhelms him at a few points, he'll take a powder to the outside yeah. and run away for a bit. Takes one very early as well. Like the, mm. After the yarn drags uh, are being like busted out by Yamada, mm. he's like... No, I shouldn't go to play. <laughs> but he never stops badmouthing. He never stops yelling. He'll yell to the crowd. Yeah. And he's not just yelling at Yamada. He's yelling at Japanese wrestling in general. <laughs> yeah. Well, he just starts yelling at Inoki. <laughs> yeah. He puts him in an abdominal stretch, obviously, similar to Inoki's octopus hold move. So he's just yelling, come on, Inoki. <laughs> you know, he's like basically saying, come on, Inoki. I'm beating up one of your boys. And then he yells out, Come on, Choshu Ricky! And then applies the Scorpion Deathlock. Like the shit talking from Rocco from throughout. Up to the end of the match, he constantly goes back to the announcer after he's won the match and won the belt. And, like, and another thing! <laughs> I do like the look of the belt as well. There's, like, it, I don't know, did it look bronze to you, like, when you saw it? It's an odd thing how British Championship belts were. They basically weren't owned by promotions that were just sort of things that got passed on almost on the word of the honor of the champion the perennial champion and so people will hold them 
It's kind of similar, I suppose, to how Fabulous Moolah was able to just basically own the women's championship for 25 years. Uh, it's like Johnny Saint just went around with a lightweight championship for 20 years, basically, <laughs> and just defended it wherever he felt like. People did try and take it off of him, but were just unable. <laughs> and Rollerball Rocco was like that with the mid-heavyweight championship. The funny thing is, the belt was supposed to debut in the semi-final, like the semi-main event, to the... Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, Wembley Arena match. Oh, the one with the table spot. Yeah, yeah, the big one. The one that if people think of, if they're thinking of one match, it's probably that match they're talking about. Yeah. I think that was when it was the tradition that the biggest match of the year for British wrestling would take place on the same day as the FA Cup final. Ah, okay. Famously, the legend goes that one year when it was Mick McManus against Jackie Palo, they had more viewers watching that match than the cup final itself. That was how the legend goes, anyway. Mick McManus isn't... I mean, there's so many British wrestlers from this time we're going to have to give at least one episode to in this. Rollable Rocker was definitely one of the ones I was keenest on because he is all, well, he's so clearly different from his time and his ma- his matches really hold up. Yeah. If you dropped Rollable Rocco into wrestling now... It'd be fine. There's nothing in this match that would look out of place except for the round breaks. Yeah. And I was wondering, actually, the reason... Because, I, like I said, I think this is fought at a lot quicker, more consistently intense pace than even most of what we get now in AEW or New Japan. And I put that down to the round breaks because that's where they take their breather. And so because they don't have to pace themselves throughout the course of the match because they don't have a any time off they do have those 30 seconds to drink some water and just regain it and then go straight back into the action yeah and it's just a three minute burst so you can kind of go at that pace and hopefully keep it up see i was thinking about this because i'm like oh round breaks and then i was like well actually when i think about it how many like rest holds or like double downs do i see like especially on like pay-per-views or or no or go sorry they're going the other way uh, if it's a pay-per-view epic, you'll get those. But especially if you're watching televised wrestling, uh, you can very clearly tell whether you're at home or you're in the crowd. You you know when there's an ad break. You know when like the hard cam's showing uh, not, nothing, basically. It's a different way of basically packaging the same thing. I think it's just because it was part of the... It was inbuilt with the culture... Right up to when it went off. Well, it's very much like boxing, isn't it? So I guess there's that traditional sporting feel. Mm. Well, I think it was just how British wrestling was formed back in the day. I think it was a European system with the rounds and two out of three falls was very much Mm. the European way of doing it. And to be fair, two out of three falls is also mostly the Mexican way of doing things. Yeah. Not so much in Japan and America. Although, back in the day, the NWA World Championship was supposed to always be fought under two out of three falls rules. And it was because of that that Buddy Rogers, I think, won a one-four match with Luthez, and that was enough for the WWF to claim he's our champion now. Yeah, yeah. He beat him in one round. What always threw me a little bit with the... And I guess I can understand the logic of it, but was always that the round would be three minutes unless a pinfall or submission happened during the round, Mm. and then the round's over. So even though they go, like, what is it, seven rounds in this match? Yeah. It's not 21 minutes. It's probably about 18 when you re- when you take away the... The falls. The falls, like the, the amount of the round that's lost by the two falls that happened beforehand. Yeah, indeed. Like, um, 
There's a mode on one of the old Fight Night games uh, that rings a bell. Sorry, not an intentional pun there. But it was like, you can't win the round. The round doesn't end until there's a knockdown. It very much reminds me of that. It's like, but obviously not in a sense. So yeah, just to get back to the Wembley, Wembley Arena match. It was supposed to be, for this new title, Rollable Rocco against Sammy Lee. Who would later who would be Tiger Mask, and Sammy Lee had to go for an emergency, but that would have just utterly because they thought there's a decent chance this Big Daddy Giant Haystack match is going to be the drizzling shit, so we better give them something good. Yeah, and that match, I think, famously the that match only goes about three minutes and ends in a countout. Yeah, so that's going to be a fairly easy match of the week to do if we ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> but Rollable Rocco was always at loggerheads with the promoters over his philosophy of what wrestling should be compared to what everyone else thought it should be. And he thought it should be this more aggressive, fast-paced style. Whereas the old promoters, the Crabtrees and and their like, thought it should stay to that Big Daddy pantomime, end-of-the-pier style to it. And he said that when you suddenly saw what the Americans were doing, they couldn't compete with that. Yeah. And so they should be something different. And ultimately he lost that debate. And even though he was still doing those styles of matches. And so he would piss off the main guys long enough. That there would be long stretches of time that he would not show up on ITV. Yeah. Because there was that sense he was showing up everyone else. So yeah, very much ahead of his time. And unlike Dynamite Kid, he hadn't gone to America. Where the more glitzy side of things can allow for more showmanship and mm. more variety in the card. Because that was one of the things about the WWF in and you know, in the old days. There was a mix up of styles of wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. Until they kind of generic it. Homogenized wrestling. They homogenized it. Yeah. And they brought in guys like the Dynamite Kid and the Heart Foundation and the like to keep, you know, to to provide some more action in their shows. Yeah. You know? And in Japan, you know, he, he fit into that perfectly, and that's why he was still a, a trusted player. He he was one for outlandish claims with Rollable Rocco. He claimed at one time he was the second highest paid guy Jin after Abdullah the Butcher, and there's like no evidence that that's the case. Wasn't uh, Hanson around at that time? Yeah, no, exactly. All right, then. <laughs> no. <laughs> Though his matches with Tiger Mask drew massive audiences, they were at the. That was when wrestling in Japan, that's kind of seen as a golden age, that early 80s time of Antonio Inoki, Tatsumi Fujinami, and them in the main events. Yeah. And Hulk Hogan, Stan Hansen, Andre the Giant. But also Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask and Black Tiger and Kuniaki Kobayashi and all those ones are also as prevalent in the memories. Mm. As I said, you know, the fact that the Black Tiger gimmick can keep being brought back... Uh, time and time again. Obviously because it's intrinsically linked with the Tiger Mask cartoon yeah. from which it's taken from. But still, for Rollable Rocco to be the one that was hand-picked is another sign of... And, and as I say, Sayama said he thought that Rocco was better in the ring than Dynamite Kid. Mm. Maybe, I don't know, it's it's a curious thing because um, he definitely he works every bit as hard as Dynamite Kid does, I suppose. Yeah. I, but again, it's the look, isn't it? It's that, that's that X-Factor thing that connection not that he doesn't connect with the crowd in this match he does but you've got to catch lightning in a bottle sometimes it's a lot a lot of this is luck in terms of catching 
a wave. Well, he had very bad luck in the genetics department. He turned out that in the early nine, like ninety-two or so, he had to retire in his early thirties because it turned out he had a heart condition that hadn't been diagnosed, and he was basically forced to go to the hospital when he was feeling under the weather. Yeah. And they found out that his heart was working at 30% capacity. Jesus. And, like, he had to retire instantly. And Can you imagine gone. what his heart, like, how good he'd have been at 100% of, like, his heart capacity then? Mm, mm. That's frightening. Well, I, yeah, I don't think he would have stood, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have, um, this is the time he would have been in, but maybe it's because of him that this time, partly because of him that this time exists. That this, this style came into Japan and took off from there. And I think it's... Uh, Regal's got a point, because if you look at it, like, I was thinking about, well, what's the thing that this doesn't have that the New Japan stuff has? And it even has high flying. Now, yeah. is the high flying what Yamada's bringing more from Mexico, from his time in Mexico as well? Uh... Because it, that was the idea that the New Japan Junior Heavyweight style was like had the mat wrestling of the European style, plus Inoki's martial arts, Japanese striking, I was gonna say. combined with Mexican lucha libre masked characters, mm. cartoon characters almost, and high flying dives and stunts and everything. That it was that meshing together. But that's all in this match as well. Now, is that mainly because Yamada had already been to Mexico, and so he brings in things like the yeah. the diving crossbody where he jumps from the top. Funnily enough, the cameraman does not know that that's about to happen. <laughs> so suddenly, just Yamada comes in from nowhere. <laughs> I, I, I kind of prefer it sometimes, though, when they film it that way. Uh, without like the big like G-up-the-crowd run-up. I, I like it, just like... Darby Allin's great at it. Um, oh yeah, I think it works when it's like they like not from nowhere, but it's like it's it's like a background gag in the Naked Gun films or something, yeah. and it suddenly comes to the foreground. Yeah, or a little bit like the Monty Python Holy Grail. Ha ha! But yeah, when they can get that pace, I mean, one of the best examples of that actually, in a way, even though it's not a dive. But of that style is the of that kind of presentation is that great moment in AEW when they're fighting pre stadium stampede when they're fighting on the on the pitch on the play on the field. Oh yeah, and you just suddenly realise coming from the back far away is someone, and then you realise it's Hangman Page and he's run like a sixty yard dash to hit a close. Oh yeah. Oh. But yeah, yeah, but you come. The weird thing about that one though is like um. One thing that Rocco's also not doing, he sells, but he gets up, like, quickly. And he actually gets in the ring before Yamada does yeah. that time. Yeah. I've, you know, people say people are no-selling these days. It's the speed know? as well of the, the British count, and the fact they're being counted for knockdowns as well. That that really does help with the pacing of the match. Yeah. Because you can't be down for long. You just, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, and it's not the referee will not do a gimmicked count. Yeah. You know, when you see, you can tell, especially in a WWE match, when the referee's going to give a count out loss because suddenly they're counting a lot more than yeah. they do uh, the... at any point when it's not booked to be a count out loss, but they're going to be outside the ring for ages. Yeah. The Roman Reigns, um, Kevin Owens last man standing match is a great example when, when there was an issue with the handcuff key. And he just yes. had to, like, ah. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll just stop 
Yeah, exactly. They won't do that because the referee does call it just straight as an arrow, yeah. as a consistent cat, and that's good, you know, for the sports presentation of it. Um, it also, I don't know, I don't know if that makes it stop start because I asked William Regal that once on the Twitter on his Twitter because he will sometimes link matches and gifs yeah. or comment on gifs. And he explains that the rules of British wrestling are if someone's hand is on the opponent when they hit the mats, then that doesn't stand for a knockdown. It's like he's been forced to the ring, forced to the mats, rather than being knocked down. He's been held down, not he's been forced. Yeah, he's been held down. So if you get them with if you hit them with a forearm and they fall to the ground, then that's gonna be a count a knockdown count. But if you body slam them and your hand's still on their chest when they hit the mats then they won't start a count. Mm. And it's interesting because at one point he's got like, he does like the first two seconds of a count and Rocco goes to pin him. And he's like, well, you can't do that. I'm counting. Yeah. And you've just broken up the counts. <laughs> and there's like moments um, when he is counting and like Rocco will go in with like a knee or, a st- well, not a stomp so much, but like, like a quick knee or grab him and then like hit him once and then the count restarts and, yeah, but yeah, it's, and I said, did the stop? I asked him, did the stop start nature of it? Was it ever frustrating for you? And he just replied, not if you know what you're doing. <laughs> such a very, that's such a regal answer. <laughs> um, There's that famous thing in um, WWE Breaking Ground during that footwork drill, and you can just see he's getting more and more and more annoyed because he's asking them to do something very simple. That's one of those things where you don't notice as a wrestling fan, but you probably do notice on a subconscious level. Yeah. Because when you suddenly see a non-wrestler in the ring and the way that they move around, you suddenly realise... How hard wrestling is. (laughs) Well, just how there's basic elements of of map presence and just the fundamentals. You don't know them until you don't see them, I suppose. It's like that... um... Who was that celebrity that did like the... She famously did like the 100 hand slap sequence with uh, Charmel in TNA once. Just, you suddenly realise, you know, they do like t- take little dainty steps when they're running across the ring. Yeah. And you realise that most of the time wrestlers are doing very long strides. And I remember, actually, I remember that from the Louis Theroux episode of him uh, doing wrestling. And we'll talk about that on a later point in um, uh, Silver Screen Visions. Yeah. The guy's being told how to run the ropes and that's what Louis agrees to learn. Is that it's like you want to take like three steps at a maximum to get across from one end of the ring to the other. Actually, I will say this ring is bigger than most of the usual world of sport British mm. wrestling rings. It looks like it's maybe eighteen by eighteen, possibly. Yeah. Or at the very least, sixteen by sixteen. <clears throat> because when like when Yamada does a dive, he covers like more than half the ring to get to. Rocco with an elbow drop, and he has to get some distance on that, you know? Oh, yeah, he gives himself... Oh, yeah, I do remember now. He does give himself a lot of work to do, but then absolutely smashes it out of the park. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the man who becomes Joshin Fundaliga. He is a, a supreme athlete, and he gets a chance to show it. I have to say, if you're Kichi Yamada, as cool as the Joshin Thunderliger costume is when it's presented to you, when you've got yourself as jacked as he has, you must be slightly frustrated that no one's going to see that upper upper body. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like, oh, maybe I won't get bothered so much when I'm out and about. He, he, 
He did stay, though, bothered. He was still built right up to yeah. the end, you know? Oh, no, I meant, like, at the shops and that. But mm. <laughs> but what Kichi Yamada's doing in this match is he's doing that classic sort of very respectful, polite young man. Yeah. Sort of act. Someone, like, taps him on the wrist as he's going into the ring, and he's like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, at the end of the match when Rocco's just, like, you know, going in. And one more thing. <laughs> and while we're here... <laughs> And Yamada just basically looks almost contrite and apologetic to the crowd, throughout it all, you know? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry I'm a wrestler. Oh, Well, he's sorry that he's lost and he's frustrated and, you know, and he has been bullied throughout the whole match and ultimately the bully triumphed. He even took the belt halfway through the match and put it on to say, I'm going to be winning this soon. And then he did. Lose. Topes (laughs) lose. But yeah, Yamada, just throughout it all, is such an amazing physical specimen. Everything he's doing, he's hitting suplexes, he's doing dives, he's matching Rocco for his pace, and he's aggressive when he needs to be aggressive. He's just got the whole thing down. The only thing is that he's not the ring general, which he will then become when he's Jushin Thunder Liger. Yeah. And he's the ace of junior wrestling, and in the eyes of many, the greatest junior wrestler ever, and one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. You can see it all in this match already, and this is only what, I think he debuted in 84, so what, is this two years after that? Yes, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so he's only got like two or three years under his belt at this point already, and he's already pulling off these sort of matches. And how much he had to fight, I mean, he is small, Uh, you know, Rocco's small, and he can tower over him and bully him. Yeah. But he's just, you know, you can see it all there originally. I feel sorry for him that he had to put on the mask as well, he's not a bad looking lad. He's got he's got a very kind of um, cherubic innocent face. No, he's handsome. There was legends that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was legends that one of the one of the reasons that he wore the mask was because he had terrible acne scars. Well, that's not true. No, I mean not true in the slightest. He is handsome, but he's not Minoru Suzuki handsome. I'd be curious to see what he, because he did have runs as a heel, Jushin Liger. I remember yeah. watching one of them. Especially when he would be doing, uh, when he would be an outsider in another promotion. There's a Noah match I remember watching. It's a tag match, I think, with him and Kanemoto against Kanemaru and one of our favourites from back in the uh, All Japan days, Soyoshi Kikuchi. My boy! And he's wearing all black. And he's like, I remember just reading a review and it was like, everything he does was described as being evil. <laughs> evil Liger! Like, he applies a camel clutch, all the while cackling evilly. And I was wondering if that might be a little bit of a rollable Rocco tribute. We'll have to look yeah. at it at some point. Quite possibly. I could I could see like him picking up like elements and how to be a shithouse from rollable. And also just being this aggressive, you know, we'll be curious to watch it as well. Uh, a Kishin Liger match, which there weren't many. Yeah. So that'll be fun to watch as well. Obviously, a lot of that was him doing his take on the great. The first time I saw uh, saw Kishin Liger was uh, on his retirement tour when Minoru Suzuki had wound him up so much. And he stabs that spike through the table and he just like Suzuki's face, like, oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I don't know if there's much more i would just say this is a match i would recommend anyone watch if you like AEW stuff if you like young bucks matches if you like any of that stuff you'll probably love this and want to see more of rollable rocco 
Um, he even has things like uh, the Ric Flair thing of like trademark. I think Meltzer said because I read his uh, read his obituary and like I think Rocco might have been one of the first ones to do like a a trademark bump into the corner. He has a couple of them in this match. Mm. He does one where he like spin around and like at the very last second do the like the somersaults fall and and bump into the yeah. buckles. Davy Boy Smith took that bump for a while and obviously you've also always had Ric Flair with his famous flare flip and. Shawn Michaels had his version of it as well. Yeah. Bret Hart as well. He does sort of the Bret Hart thing of charging. Into the chest. Torso first. Well, yeah, but then later on he goes, it's like, I think it was what he meant to do the first time. Because each time he goes for like a knee, a charging knee, and he misses, and he just goes knee first right into the the corner. And he even takes the corner off at one point at the start of the first round. Again, he just ultimate shithouse. Immediate like... Well, whilst I'm here during this corner break, I'm gonna have a, bus, a drink of water and remove the padding off of this <laughs> and smash him into the bu- into the buckles every time. Straight claim away, it's not my fault. Yeah, <laughs> claim it's not my fault that this is shoddy workmanship. <laughs> cowboys, referee, <laughs> there are a bunch of cowboys. <laughs> so yeah, I, I definitely think. I mean, there's lots of rollable rocker. We should probably do a black tiger mask at some point. Seen there, yeah, and also occasionally the dynamite kid would come in and and do matches. I think he is something. I think you can, there's a, a rollable rocker Johnny Saint match on there somewhere. Oh, okay, um, so that'd be another fun one to see. That'd be a, an interesting clashing of styles. Really, <clears throat> rollable rocker will go all over the place, whereas Johnny Saint is very much like center of the ring. Trade some moves. <laughs> Come take it from me if you can. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think he's ahead of his time. I actually remember at one point I thought the guy who he almost looked like. I, had, uh, I don't like to go into like the fancy booking ideas, but I did always have this idea that I'd love to do like a modern version of Rollable Rocco yeah. in the presentation. And with the costume as well, like the United States flag sort of get up. With with Japanese uh, headbands as well, <laughs> it's like things he's been ac- acquiring through his travels because he did wrestle in Madison Square Garden a few times as Black Tiger. Oh, cool! And um, I thought actually the guy who I thought could do like a Rollable Rocco tribute act in as far as appearance, but do it as like a mocking of the British fans. Mm. In my head, the guy I would do for that is Austin Aries. Uh, 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 e- yeah, yeah. Austin Aries. Look, we can say a lot of stuff about Austin Aries. We're gonna have to do an Austin Aries match one at some point because there would have been a time Austin Aries was like one of my maybe my favorite wrestler to watch, and then we found out everything else about him. Uh, well, <laughs> but, I saw his. Um... It's like it's like if the rollable Rocco character was real. Yeah, <laughs> it was Austin Aries. I saw Austin Aries's NXT debut live. Uh, for God's sakes. I think that was my uh, piss break match, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll be. I'm sure I'll love to know that. Why don't you fork out fifty dollars and tell him that yourself? No, no, that's three minutes of my life. I, I, I'd rather you took four minutes of my life and I want them back. Well, our listeners won't be able to claim back the thirty minutes we've taken of their lives or so. No refunds. No, no time-based refunds. Nope, <laughs> none at all. You mentioned obviously that. A Rollable Rocco match was going to be like the semi-main against that giant Haystacks Big Daddy match. And obviously that's what everyone thinks British wrestling is. This match is a great showcase of what else British wrestling was. And why it's so influential in the minds of so many wrestlers that you like today. Yeah, and Rollable Rocco was a known figure. I bet if you ask people to name British wrestlers... 
from that time, he'd be amongst the first five or six names. Yeah. It would be Big Daddy, Giant Haystack, Les Kellett, Mick McManus, Johnny Saint, Adrian uh, Streets, and Rollerball Rocker would be amongst those wrestlers as well. And if a few things had gone for him well, and if he hadn't had that heart condition, you know, he could have been around long enough to get one last run at the start of the indie scene in the 90s if he hadn't burnt enough bridges in the time in between. (laughs) I very well have done that. But he would have slotted into that Jody Fleisch, Johnny Storm form of wrestling a lot easier than anyone else from that time period. If he'd have been around for when the FWA did their old guard against new school wrestling, he would have been fantastic. He he could have done a... uh... Excursion to ECW. Well, we can talk about that another time. But before we get to that, if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, with some more suggestions for Rollable Rocco matches or more Fuji Yamada matches, it'd be curious to find some stuff from his time in Mexico as well, possibly. How can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter where I am so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of grandmas per square meter in the crowd. <laughs> My name is Lorcan Mullen. That's L O R C A N M U L L A for the A in the third letter of Mark, and N for the N in Japan, which was the flag that was waved behind Fuji Yamada during that match at the start when the instructions. And that was a hell of an achievement as well. Getting a Catford crowd in the mid '80s to support a local a Japanese wrestler. <laughs> Oh, there would have been some comments in the crowd. <laughs> oh, some mutterings. There were some mutterings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a nice, clean young man, though. <laughs> also, just wrestling in Catford. <laughs> I do love how these British wrestling shows are in those places. The Catfords. You know, he's like, he's trying to get revenge from drop- losing the belt to Yamada in Croydon. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we all remember the droit witch Donnybrook, don't we? <laughs> And the Battle of Bedworth. (laughs) But anyway, before we wrap up, we've got to tell you what our match of the week is for next week. A promotion that you just made an allusion to. We had previously, this is the second match of that promotion, but instead of two Brits tearing it up, like our previous match of the week between Jody Fleisch and Johnny Storm, it's more what the promotion is better known for. Simon, what are we talking about next time? Uh, Our next match takes place in uh, CZW, and it is someone you recognise, someone you realise you recognise, and someone who relied on not being recognised and got arrested for it. It is John Moxley against former WWE referee Drake Younger against... Nick Gage, a man who robbed a bank without a mask. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.